0: The question before us this morning is, why was Jesus born? If you want to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, as we begin there at least, why was Jesus born? If it was merely so he could be the reason for the season, I guess we have someone who we can blame for the overspending long lines and traffic jams. It's a little bit confusing for me when I stop to think about Jesus is the reason for the season. I'm like, oh, so that's who we can blame. Um, I understand that's with good intent that Jesus is the reason for the season, but it's so short-sighted. Why was Jesus born? Why did he come here? Why did we need to have God incarnate? And as time allows, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'd like to look at six answers to that question during our time this morning. And if it ends up being less than that, that's fine, because I think there could maybe be 60 answers to the question, but I've at least got six answers written down. Why would Jesus need to be born? Not to mention the fact, why do we celebrate it, but why did he need to come here to begin with? And I hope what happens is as we answer each of these questions, it causes us more and more to want to worship Him, to feel compelled, to feel moved to worship Him for coming here. The profound reality that it is that God became one of us, that He came here and He was born one of us, should cause us to want to worship Him. Number one, as far as answers are concerned, Jesus was born to implement an eternal decree. Jesus came here. He was born to implement, to make reality an eternal decree. We'll probably invest the most of our time here because it is not something we talk about very often, but it makes me want to worship Jesus. He was born to implement an eternal decree. And we see this in Ephesians 1 as well as other places. But let me explain what I don't mean by that. And it might be helpful. What I don't mean is Jesus was born to fulfill prophecy. That's true. That's important. We read about it in Matthew 1. I'm not trying to downplay that. But that's not going to be one of the answers just this morning. Maybe next year. Okay. What I mean is before prophecy pre-prophecy in the counsel of God, the eternal counsel of God in the divine throne room before there was ever even prophecy, before there was anything. God himself counseled with himself and determined and decreed. To create a world, to create a world where there would be a rebellion, to create a world where there would be a rebellion, where there would need to be redemption or he would choose to have redemption. And as he was decreeing and planning these things, he would have the son come here, become one of us to be our redeemer. We're talking about the the meeting of, of the triune God to have a decree for these things to happen. Jesus needs to be born because that's his role in this divine, eternal counsel of God. And now we're way, way, way beyond small things. Think about it. We're not even reading the Ephesians text yet. But just think about, now we're before time, reaching into eternity past, and you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit meeting together, counseling together, coming up with this divinely wise plan to create, to even allow for a fall, for rebellion, and then to plan to maximize their own glory as God, to have redemption and reconciliation, and the Father in this plan is going to be the one who elects, and the Son is going to be the one who comes to redeem, and the Spirit is going to be the one who applies the work of redemption to those the Father has chosen. Deep end of the pool which should cause us to then have the kind of worship that we wouldn't otherwise have. Jesus came here because of the eternal decree of the all-wise, all-knowing, triune God. And we learn something about it in Ephesians chapter 1. Therefore, we learn something about the significance of Christmas in Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, and we'll read 3 down to verse 14, we learn something about the greatness of this plan that Jesus comes to implement. Beginning in verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's praising God for this great reality because it goes on to say who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him so the Father chooses us in Him in the Son before the foundation of the world. But there's something that even precedes before the foundation of the world. That's a long time ago, before the foundation of the world. Okay, that, that, that would be enough to, to, to get Paul revved up and praising God, and he's revved up and praising God in Ephesians chapter 1. But there's something that even comes before that, which is what we were talking about. Let's keep reading. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And how about this? According to the purpose of... Of His will, that from which everything else flows, according to the purpose of His will. Verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of His grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And then how about verse 9? Making known to us the mystery of His will. According to His purpose. According to His decree. According to His intent. According to His plan. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Got out my underlining, a pen to underline here at once again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel. This is that plan. This plan to decree according to the counsel of His will. Verse 12, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so, yes, Jesus is born according to prophecy. But before prophecy... Oh yes, we have the choosing before the foundation of the world, but we also have something about the will of God and the counsel of God, the decree of God that even precedes that. Jesus is born because God in His infinite wisdom orchestrated a plan where the Father would act and the Son would act and the Spirit would act. awesome to think about really really we use the word a lot but really awesome to think about oh Jesus is born in Bethlehem better than I even imagined I remember being a new Christian and thinking this is amazing I I, I wanted to tell people did you know that, that this stuff is talked about in the Old Testament You know, the prophecy is just awesome and amazing, and and it is. But there's something that holds that up. The eternal decree of God. One person put it this way. The persons of the Godhead mutually committed themselves to Bethlehem as well as Golgotha From all eternity. So when Jesus is coming. It's part of the plan. It's his part of the plan. As far as what he himself is doing. Taking on human flesh. This is why he was born. Maybe just to get a better feel for this. um, Would be to go to Titus. It doesn't speak to the matter directly, but Titus chapter 1 at least gives us a better sense of of how great this is as far as timing is concerned. If we're talking about something that reaches so far back, I like the wording and the the verbiage and I'm intrigued by Titus chapter 1 because the promise in Titus 1 is before times eternal, literally, before times eternal. In Titus 1, we read about Paul writing the letter. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 2, well, let's just read beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Then verse 2 is really striking. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies promised before the ages begin. And if you have a marginal note, you do if you're reading from the same translation I'm reading from, the marginal note says before time's eternal. Which is a it's a good way to put it. Before time's eternal. So the promises, promise was made, promised before time's eternal. So God made the promise before time's eternal for this salvation to be reality. God made a promise before time's eternal that we would be saved. Now, I I just would like to see a show of hands. Who heard God say that before time's eternal? Who who in this room heard God God make the promise? None of us did, right? No one was there to hear God make this promise before time is eternal, except God, the triune God, when the promise was made for us to be redeemed. But each member of the triune God was certainly committed to fulfilling their purpose. And in particular, it's Christmas Day, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus that God the eternal son would do his part in coming here on our behalf according to eternal decree is mind staggering and worship compelling. Jesus said this in John six thirty-nine. you can just listen and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day this is the will of him who sent me the will of the father and I will do my part and I will lose none of them i'm committed I'm committed to this plan, to this promise, to this purpose, to this decree. And I will do my part faithfully. And notice the sureness of it. He will lose none of them. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our very lives. He's a God who saves according to promise, according to decree according to his own perfect wisdom. This helps me understand. It doesn't sort out all of the mystery, and obviously that couldn't even happen. This helps me understand even when we learn about Jesus being crucified according to the predetermined plan of God in Acts chapter 2. The most awful thing to have ever been done. But it's according to the predetermined plan of God. This is part of the divine decree that the Son would give Himself up for us, Ephesians chapter 5. So when I read Acts 2 23, and it says He's delivered up according to the predetermined or definite plan of God, crucified, I can at least understand a little bit better, even though there's still mystery. I I can even understand a little bit better, even though it's still more than I can get my mind around it. When I read in in Isaiah 53, that it pleased the father to crush the son. It's always been baffling to me, and I think it should be baffling to anyone. How could it give pleasure to the father to crush the son? I still don't know exactly how it works, although it's not absolute confusion because you have, again, before times eternal, the promise being made, which was even preceded by the purpose of God, the decree of God, the plan of God, the agreement among God Himself to redeem. To redeem. That this is going to work and this is going to be successful. So much so that we can have a promise of eternal life before times eternal. Isn't it great? It's really, really good news (laughs) that this would be how it would be. Why was Jesus born? It was to fulfill, if you will, his role, his place in the divine decree. Helps me appreciate his birth even more, his person and his love for us even more. Let's look at another answer to the question, why was Jesus born? I think we've probably done enough for one day. but uh, (laughs) Let's look at another one, and that would be to represent us. He was born to represent us, to represent us in life, to represent us in death, to represent us in resurrection. I'm not sure how many of these passages you would like to look at, but in 1 Corinthians 15, there are a couple of texts that talk about Jesus as the last Adam. And as Adam was our representative leading us into sin... According to Romans chapter 5, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have Jesus also called Adam. So he is a type of Adam, you might say. So Adam led us into sin as our representative, and we have Jesus as the last Adam, the faithful Adam, representing us, leading us into righteousness. Why was Jesus born? Jesus was born to be an Adam. To be the ultimate Adam, to be our representative, to lead us into righteousness, to be our faithful leader. As Charles Wesley referred to him in his song, he said, Alive in Him, my living head. We had the head of the human race leading us into sin. We have the head of God's chosen race leading us into righteousness. I love the Lord Jesus because He is my representative. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45 we see that the first man Adam became a living spirit or became a living being. Likewise it says the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. and So He is called the last Adam. And the comparison is there. There's a direct comparison between the two. If you go back up in your passage to verses 21 to 23, you learn a little bit more about how this how this plays itself out. In verse 21 it says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Sometimes we call this Adam theology. It's our understanding of, of so much. If you want to understand who Jesus is and why he was born and why he lived and why he died... You've got to understand something of how God deals with the human race. And it is through representation. He is our living head. John MacArthur so aptly puts it this way. Our iniquitous or sinful life was legally charged to Him on the cross as if He had lived it. So that his righteous life could be credited to us as if we lived it. That is the doctrine of justification by imputation. The high point of the gospel. I would agree it's the high point of the gospel. That we're declared righteous. Justification. We're justified, declared righteous by imputation. By being credited with righteousness. Righteousness. Whose righteousness is it? It's not the first Adam's. We were credited with his unrighteousness. We're credited with the last Adam's righteousness. And by the way, this is why grace makes sense. Because it's not our doing. But it is the high point of the gospel. The good news that it's not based upon your spiritual treadmill success. Based upon the righteousness of Christ, representation, high point of the gospel. I'm so grateful and I want you to be so grateful if you're a Christian that your righteousness is not in this room or lack thereof. That your righteousness does not reside within you. That your uh, uh, desire and your hope is not built upon you and what you may or may not do. That your hope, your righteousness, as we've been seeing in Hebrews lately, is seated at the right hand of God on high. And His name is Jesus. He came here to be our righteousness as our substitute. That's why we worship Him. That's why we praise Him. A passage that's intrigued me recently uh, has been 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'll invite you to go ahead and turn there with me regarding this matter of Christ, our righteousness, as our representative. Second Peter is pretty easy to find because if you find the book of Revelation at the end, you can back up to Jude and you can back up and keep going back through the epistles of John. And it's toward the end, a small little book, Second Peter, regarding this matter. I will never grow tired of this. This is, again, a high point of the gospel. I couldn't agree more. It's Him. My hope is in Him. And that's why He came here. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, again, it's interesting all the theology you find in some of these introductions to these letters. But we do. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith. And he's using a faith there, uh, a synonymous with salvation, those who have obtained salvation, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So it's not even really his point, but equality is. But but he makes the point nevertheless to, to establish equality. He says those who have obtained a faith, those who have obtained a salvation. And notice how that happens. By the righteousness. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Many, many times, about every commentary you read or study Bible, they'll, they'll underscore the fact that this is a, a, a very important proof text to show that Jesus is God. And it is. The way the grammar is set up, you've got our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, explaining what is meant or who the righteousness belongs to. It's not just God. In separate Jesus Christ. No. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. But sometimes what you don't find emphasized. Sometimes you do. Is the fact that. The faith. The salvation. Is by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You see. How do we have this salvation. How do we have this. Similar faith, all of us. How could we all be the same? Because we have the same righteousness. The righteousness that's from our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the great uniter. Because it's how we can be equally justified. We could look at other texts that would emphasize representation, not just in righteousness on that level, but righteousness in a representation in uh, being our perfect atoning sacrifice, the just for the unjust, to give his life as a ransom for many. We could look at Romans chapter 4. He's raised for our justification. So through his life, Through his death, through his resurrection, we find righteousness. Why was Jesus born? Jesus was born to be our representative. He was born to be our representative. Jesus was born to be our mediator as well, number three. A third way to answer the question, why was Jesus born? He was born to be our mediator. In Hebrews, we've seen this again and again. Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 12. If you want to go ahead and turn to Hebrews 8, we'll just scan a text or two there. He's our mediator. I found a great quotation regarding this that that kind of helped me think more deeply about this. I thought you might appreciate. One Dutch writer uh, puts it this way. Regarding the mediation of Jesus. Just listen carefully. He is not a third party between God and us. So Jesus is not a third party between God and us. But is Himself the Son of God. And at the same time, the Son of Man. The head of all humanity. He does not stand between two parties. How about this? He is those two parties in His own person. Helpful. Helpful in blowing my mind with mystery. Helps me to understand a little bit, maybe, when we talk about in First Timothy chapter 2, that he is the one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ, Jesus. That's why it's so important for him to be born. To be incarnate, to take on flesh, to become one of us. To be a true mediator for us. Not outside of the race, but part of the race. And so we've read, for example, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant. He mediates, he's the mediator of this new covenant, is better since it is enacted on better promises Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, we've seen similar kind of verbiage. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. But notice he's the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, is going to tell us that he's the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is. So He provides perfect, ultimate, unending, undissolvable, uh, undoable mediation. Because He reconciles. And so we sing, peace on earth, can it be? Well, no, quite frankly, not now. But we have peace with God now. Like Romans 5 talks about, and ultimately, as we talked about even last night, there will be peace on earth because of Christ and his reconciling work at his second coming, his return. We'll talk about that maybe in a little bit. He's the great mediator, he's the prince of peace. And as as I have mentioned before, as recently as last night, sometimes we we don't want to take very much time to lift up the the stones and look under them to talk about mediator. Because when you start talking about mediator, it means you've got conflict. And if there's anything we don't want to talk about on Christmas, it's sin. And if there's anything we don't want to talk about, it's conflict, even though we're busy fighting with each other. Anyway. (sighs) But apart from an acknowledgement of sin and rebellion and being an offense to God. Mediation makes no sense. I appreciated some of the songs we were singing this morning because they didn't gloss over and say nothing about sin. They actually did talk about it. The only way... You're going to say, I have a mediator in Christ and I love Him so much so that I find myself worshiping Him. I have perfect mediation. It's if you first know something about God and that He's not the, the, the big guy upstairs. And something about yourself that you're not a good person, inherently good. Sometimes you're placed in a bad environment so you can blame it on someone else. That we're rebels, that we're sinners, and, and God is righteous, and flexibly so. And now all of a sudden we, we realize we have a problem, and now all of a sudden we have one born in Bethlehem who will save his people from their sins. He is the one who is God with us. He is the mediator of the better covenant. I'm starting to feel like a charismatic. Praising Him. Praising Him. And we all should. I don't care if I look like I'm a worshiper. Because I am. I'm delighted beyond measure. I'm free. I'm a Christian. Because I have a mediator. Why was He born? He was born to be a mediator. Related to this would be the fact that he was born to reconcile. I put it as number four, but it certainly would relate to number three. And since we've already been talking about this, I'll just add one more highlight to him being born to reconcile. We can talk about reconciling God and us. We can talk about reconciling one another, regardless of what our background is, as Ephesians talks about Jew and Gentile. But in Colossians, it says that Jesus, through his work, not just through his birth, but he has to be born in order to do all that he's going to do, that Jesus reconciles all things. Jesus reconciles all things. Colossians one twenty and through him to reconcile to himself, so he's the focal point, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Think about the, the Savior we're talking about when we talk about Jesus is the one who reconciles. In fact, sometimes it's spoken of in the past tense because his work is done. He's reconciled all things in himself. And now we do have to look forward to his return when these things actually become fully realized or, or fully actualized or however you'd like to say it, when they actually become reality as we would see them. But you've got to know that Jesus came here so that he could bring an end to all conflict and so he could reconcile everything in the entire universe so that everything would work properly, correctly, rightly, Ultimately, giving glory to the God who made it. And where does it all center? Where's the focal point? Where, where does the power come from? Who's the, the center of attention in all of it? It's the one who was born in the ratty town of Bethlehem. It was a ratty town when he was born there. It's a ratty town today. The nowhere town. My brother pastors a church called Bethlehem Bible Church. He laughs about it. Nowhere Bible Church. Insignificant Bible Church. Not a very good name to pick. Although on another level, it's a great name to pick. The Lord Jesus Christ, born in nowheresville. The one who has reconciled all things, universality, to himself. So you think about injustice, and you think about natural disaster, and you think about all of these different forms of chaos. And one day because of what's already been done, standing in the shadow of the cross. There will be no rogue elements. No rogue anything. This is why, even as believers, and, 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 and we think about Romans chapter 8, not just as believers, but even the whole creation, speaking metaphorically, uh, Paul says, groans. Ah. Oh. When will it be fixed? How long, O Lord? But even in that cry, there is this, there is meant to be this sureness, this expectancy, this hope in the Christian sense of hope, that it is going to happen. It's going to happen. That's why we would celebrate even the coming of Jesus And number five, another reason why he was born, and he was born to be an example. He was born to be an example according to Philippians chapter 2. Unfortunately, we're at a place where his example is given preeminence. The Bible doesn't give his example preeminence. The Bible gives his work as representative preeminence but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater we would be unbiblical and unfaithful and missing out if we only talked about his redemptive work and we didn't say there's something to be learned here for us and in Philippians chapter 2 the great incarnation self-humiliation the eternal son humbles himself Becomes one of us. Wasn't obligated. Didn't have to. Volunteered for the job because he gave himself up for us. And we're supposed to learn from it as Christians. And that's why it says in Philippians chapter 2, right before he gives us that, that, that great humility passage emphasizing Christ's humility, he says in verse 5, have this mind or have this attitude, this mindset. Among yourselves. Talking to Christians. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who although he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. And, and we'll stop there. You, you know the passage. Have this mindset among yourselves. Now if that's all we ever talk about. We won't understand the profound nature of. What he did. But we talk about that a lot. And so now we need to remember. You know. Now the Ethical exhortation to you and to me is be humble don't look out for yourself and only for yourself you need to see others as more important than yourself and you need to sacrifice for them because that's what your savior did for you it makes all the sense in the world that you wouldn't count your what you deserve to be priority because what he deserved is to never come here and so now as Christians, and it's an amazing thing in the context of the Philippian church, because people are complaining and fighting and arguing about things that are not priority things. And he says, hey, wait a minute. Have you, have, have you forgotten your Savior? Have you forgotten the priority of the gospel? As a matter of fact, your, your personal complaining about being wronged by other individuals is, is getting in the way of, of the focus on Christ. And you know What? You need to focus on Christ a little bit more so you can even act Christ like. And so Jesus was born here, incarnate, incarnation to give us an example. Because in one sense we might all have our rights as church members and Christians. But to defer and say no to myself, yes to you. Why? Because there's a greater purpose here, and it's the glory of Christ, even in the context of Philippians, in promoting and proclaiming and advancing the gospel cause. And when I'm just thinking about myself, it gets in the way of the agenda. And so he's a great example, the best example, the ultimate example. He's more than an example, but he's not less than an example. So we should praise Him and worship Him because of the example He provides. And then finally, and we can end on this. Why was Jesus born? Jesus was born to be exalted. Jesus was born to be exalted. In that same passage in Philippians where we learn about his self-humiliation and humbling himself, it's voluntary, he's acting this way, and because of his voluntary actions on our behalf, then it says, therefore God what? Highly exalted him, that he is lifted up and he's given the name above every name so that everyone on earth above the earth, under the earth, everywhere you could possibly reach is the idea, would give him glory and give him honor and give him praise because he humbled himself, became one of us to live and die and rise for us. So he is the supreme, exalted one. Think about Jesus born in Bethlehem, in the manger, humility, 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 So that he would be exalted above all. King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a great truth. In fact, think of it this this way. he He is so exalted because of his great humiliation that it might actually rub you the wrong way at first. So you're telling me he was on his throne in heaven and knew full well that if he humbled himself and became part of the human race and gave himself, that that, that would result in him being exalted above everyone and anyone, anywhere and everywhere? Who does he think he is? god or something yeah that's right it's exactly right but isn't it interesting we ask the question why why this why that why this and sometimes we ask too many questions i like questions i'm fond of questions sometimes maybe we ask too many of them And if you read the Bible long enough, you've been around long enough, you start figuring out, you know the right answer is. The trump card answer is because it gives glory to God. When it's total mystery to us, we go, well, God did it this way because it must give given more glory because we know that God does what he does to act like God. And that's true. That's right. But isn't it interesting? I don't know if you've thought about this before. Perhaps you have. That God did, in fact, receive more glory by doing it this way than he would have otherwise. Creating a world with a built in fault. Because there would be rebellion, because we're talking about the God who works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1. Why would he do that? Well, I don't know the intricacies, and, and there's definitely a mystery involved, but so he could provide redemption. Yeah, but why didn't, he, why didn't he just do it so he didn't have to provide redemption and he didn't have to have a fall and There's no built-in fault. Why didn't he just do it that way? The answer is because this would give him more glory. Because He can then provide redemption through His great Son who's going to humble Himself so then He can highly exalt Him above all others in a unique way that He wouldn't have been exalted otherwise as the God-man, right? And so God can show His attributes perhaps that would have been there, yes, but perhaps we wouldn't have seen otherwise like His great grace and His great mercy and His great long-suffering. It gives God more glory. It gave Jesus more glory to become one of us. Even the the reasons surrounding why he would need to become one of us gives him more glory than he would have received otherwise. And so here we should be as fallen men and women, sinners here on this Christmas morning, seeing him perhaps as we haven't seen him before, maybe a better picture of him, maybe a a less comfortable picture of him, but a better picture of him, giving him praise and glory and honor because we've tasted of his goodness and we've experienced his grace and his mercy. And so we want to give him praise and worship as God like we wouldn't have otherwise. I invite you to do that. I urge you to do that. And to find great joy in doing that. And acting like a worshiper. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for your great son Jesus. And may we find ourselves here today. Responding to the praise. Of your glorious grace. With which We have been blessed in the Beloved in Christ. To your praise, to your glory, to your honor. Thank you for revealing these things to us. Thank you for loving us in this extraordinary way. Thank you for humbling yourself. Thank you for giving us the gift of salvation in your Son, Jesus. Even as Peter says, thank you for causing us to be born again to a living hope so that we might understand these things and begin a journey of understanding them better. What a great, great, great Savior we have in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.